Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I spoke to a neuroscientist about the negative effects alcohol has on our brain. So I decided I'm going to take 12 months off and bring you along for the journey. Each week, I'm going to document how it's affected me physically, emotionally, socially, and also financially. Welcome to 28 and Sober. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to week number 38 of 28 and Sober, my one-year journey stopping drinking alcohol and what a journey it has been. Very excited to kick off 2023. It has been a nice start for me and I can't wait for more to come. So many new people have been tuning into this podcast and I'm so grateful for that. 2023 has already seen a massive spike in new listeners, new subscribers and yeah, legends just like you listening right now, tuning in. So if you are new here, please make sure you go and hit like and subscribe. Do me a huge favor. Tell a friend about this podcast. I know the value so many of you are getting out of it. And the best thing you can do for me is tell someone about it. So please let one friend know about it. Send them a text, tag us on your Instagram story, or yeah, just leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I love reading them. And yeah, I really appreciate every single one of you. Also, if you do enjoy this podcast, make sure you head over to thegoodhumanfactory.com. Check out the merchandise. I've left up the 50% off sale for, I'm going to leave it up for this week. I really need to get rid of some room because I've got some really fun new stuff coming. So if you go on the website and there's some stuff left in the size, it won't be restocked. So now is your time. Use the code GOODFRIENDS and you get a big 50% off. So I'd be very appreciative if you check that out. Also have a look around the website, look at our workshops and everything else that um, yeah we've got going on this year. All right, my sober journey this week has been pretty chilled, to be honest. I haven't had too many opportunities to drink. Um, had a really busy week, actually, back in the office with the Good Human Factory work, really starting to kick off this year, booking in a lot of workshops, which has been amazing. A lot of you have come from this podcast, so thank you. If you do listen to the podcast and you want to learn more about um, these mental health workshops I run, they're a bit different. They're kind of all about just inspiring people to take control of what values that they live by and, yeah, the effects that that can have on our mental health. So go check that out. Um, yeah, but this week was kind of chill. I had my partners going back to Brazil for a few months um, tomorrow on Tuesday from when this episode comes out. So I've had a few nice dinners with friends, obviously no drinking for me, which has been pretty mellow. All of my friends are actually really on this sober train. It was actually quite funny. I went to dinner on Friday night and had um, – five mates with me and the lady came around to take drink orders and I was first I was like I'll just get a lemon lime bitters and then everyone else just drunk water so I went from normally being the one who's been healthy by just getting a soft drink instead of a drink a beer or something to being the unhealthy one that got a soft drink instead of water so it was um it was a pretty funny little chuckle I had with myself about that but yeah still on the lemon lime bitters and pretty relaxed I also went out on Saturday night for a friend's birthday in Sydney um and yeah, everyone had a bunch of cocktails and was drinking. I just had a non-alcoholic beer. But once again, I had two or three people at the table who were good friends who weren't drinking as well, which was really cool. So that definitely helped me out a lot. Also this week, I did speak to a lovely lady by the name of Jill Stark. And Jill is um, an author. She's a journalist and she's written some stories about alcohol and the effects it has on us. She then wrote a book called Higher Sobriety. This was 10 years ago and it just got re-released with a few extra chapters um, she sent me a copy and I got her on for a quick little 
half an hour chat to talk about her journey, why she wrote a book about um, sobriety, what her experience has been like, some of the tricks and tips that she has. And yeah, like I've said a few weeks in a row, I really want to this year bring some light to other people's journeys with alcohol because for me, I understand um, it's very unique why I'm doing it and everyone has their different reasons. And yeah, it was really cool to have a chat to Jill and learn why she's taking some time off drinking and why she's um, yeah written a few books about it. And yeah, it was just a really interesting chat. Um, I'm going to chuck it on right now. This obviously is going to be a lot longer than my normal Monday episode, but hopefully you can get something out of this chat. Little pre-warning, it was recorded on Zoom, so there is um, a few minor audio problems, but you should be very fine listening to it, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Make sure you tag both me and Jill. Um, I will leave all that stuff in the show notes. If you enjoy this little chat, I'll also leave her book in the show notes too. So let's jump into it. First 28 and Sober guest for this year, Jill Stark. Welcome. How are you going, Jill? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's going to be nice to have a bit of a chat. You're actually my... I think I might have had one guest last year on 28 and Sober, but you're um one of you're my first guest on 28 and Sober for this year. And I think we're gonna learn a lot from you. I feel like my story, as I was saying to you, I believe is getting a little bit boring for my audience because we all have a very different story when it comes to alcohol. And you've written a few awesome books on it, higher sobriety, 10 year anniversaries this year, your re-release just came out this week. I've got it in my hand actually. I'm very excited to read it and thank you for sending it out to me. But yeah, I'm excited to learn a bit more about your story, the effects alcohol's had on your journey, and yeah, some of the lessons you've learned along the way. So to kick off, I'm going to start how I start all my guest episodes and say, what are you grateful for right now? I am grateful for um, the fact that, you know, when you write a book, you, particularly when you write memoir like I do, and you put a bit of yourself out into the world, and it's a pretty scary process, it can be, to bear your soul to the general public. I'm very grateful that this week when the book came out, I've just had so many lovely messages from people um, who feel like they are seen by the, the words that I've written, who feel like a bit of their own story is being told in those pages. So I'm, I'm grateful for that human connection. And I think that is the point of storytelling is for us to feel less alone. So I'm grateful that um, hopefully people do feel a little bit less alone when they, when they read my books. Oh, I love that. It's beautiful, beautiful little thing to be grateful for. So we're going to kick off this episode and we need to get a bit of a story about who you are so it makes sense, the whole stopping alcohol and the writing the books about it. So where'd you grow up? What was life like as a, I guess, teenager? And yeah, when did alcohol become a part of your life? So I'm Scottish by birth, uh, hence the accent. I grew up in Edinburgh. Spent the first 25 years of my life there in Scotland. Um, and as a Scot, as you can imagine, the drinking culture is pretty ingrained. It's very much part of our national identity, very similar to Australia. Um, had my first drink at the age of 13. So a can of lager that my friend and I stole from my parents' drinks cabinet. And we poured it into a glass and put some sugar in it because we'd heard that that would make it taste better. Because this was like, you know, I'm in my 40s, so this was in the days before alcohol pops and ready to drinks that, you know, mm. took away a bitter taste of alcohol. So we, we heard that if we put sugar in it and drank it through a straw, that would make us get drunk faster and it would taste better. And it, it really it really didn't. Um, and then my older brother came came home, my parents were out, and saw what we were doing. And, you know, in the, in the Scottish equivalent of, you know, McDundee's, 
that's not a knife. This is a knife. He was like, that's that's not a drink. And then goes into my parents' drinks cabinet and just starts pouring all these spirits into glasses. And and he says, here, have this. It's an FYU. And I was like, what's an FYU? He's like, it's a fuck you up. And I was like, right, right. <laughs> yeah, we did get pretty fucked up. Um, so that was my introduction to drinking. And I immediately fell in love with um, being drunk, with the how liberating it felt as a very anxious child. That was probably the beginning of a, not a particularly healthy relationship with alcohol because, you know, what I've learned over time is that alcohol is a terrible friend and a not very good therapist. Um, so, yeah, my introduction to, to drinking was, uh, was, was pretty normal for, um, for Scotland, but as an addiction doctor told me in high sobriety when I interviewed him for the book, just because something is normal doesn't mean it's healthy, <laughs> which mm. is to the system. That's interesting. You'll probably be able to um, comment on this because I think one of the main reasons why alcohol is so accepted is our lack of education on actually what's happening when we drink. And I don't know if you did at school, but I'm almost going to guarantee you didn't learn about the effects alcohol has had on us at school. I definitely didn't either. What's your take on that? Where are we missing the point in the education system now that you've written books about this or where do you see the gap in um, wh- why are we not getting taught this stuff? It's so hard to know where to even start with that, too, to be honest, because it's it is so ingrained into our culture, and I think um, part of it is political. Part of it is that the alcohol industry is a very powerful lobbying machine that donates heavily to the two major political parties. Um, everyone loves a glass of wine. Everyone has a wine a winery in their electorate. No one really wants to talk about the fact that alcohol were it to be introduced as a drug onto the market today, would never be legalized because it's one of the most dangerous drugs out there. Uh, we don't want to talk about that because we have normalized the fact that we ingest a group one carcinogen. And a group one carcinogen means it's up there with tobacco, um, asbestos, in terms of what Chance it does. Of getting to cancer, yeah. Getting cancer. Uh, the, the things that I discovered when I wrote High Sobriety, as I said, like I was a health reporter for the Age newspaper and I wrote, I won awards writing about Australia's binge drinking culture. And then at the weekends, I wrote myself off and I had this kind of double life. And even though I was writing about those impacts, I, there was a complete disconnect between my perception of my reality and what I thought was happening in the you know outside world. Um, and it was only when I interviewed an addiction specialist for high sobriety and I went to meet him because he was a very good contact of mine. He, he is a neuroscientist who deals with people with serious drug and alcohol addictions every day. And I sat down to interview him and halfway through the interview, it became quite apparent that this was more like a medical intervention <laughs> than an interview. And he started asking me questions about my own drinking. And I just thought I was a um, bog standard binge drinker, which I probably was. But as he said, you know, what he described my pattern of drinking, which is just, you know, like many people of my age at the time, I was in my early 30s. Um, it, it was everyone was drinking like that. And, and he said that the way that I was drinking on the weekends heavily and, and having feeling that need to have a drink every time I was socializing, he described it as pre-malignant addiction which is not something you ever want to hear because when you think of malignancy, you think of cancer, you think of something very deadly. And he was saying that you, it's it's kind of like a, if you think about a melanoma or a pre-malignant mm. growth growing, it is not going to kill you yet. But if you continue on this path, that's where I was going. So the pre-malignant addiction was like an addiction that was just starting to to bud, if you like. To and, start to and, 
Sorry, and how much were you drinking? Because I feel like it'd be to give us a bit of a ballpark idea because then I'm sure people can relate to this because when I, I mean, one of the things that I learned a lot from was Andrew Huberman's podcast he did on alcohol recently uh, a few months back. I'm sure you've probably listened to it. Um, and he spoke about the fact that if you have just seven drinks a week, you're classified a chronic drinker in the eyes of science and in the eyes of what um, the negative effects start happening. And I was like, oh, seven drinks a week. Like that would be an average one or two nights a week. Yeah. yeah. So, so what was your um, consumption like? Just so people can maybe relate. I mean, I think this question, I get asked this question a lot and I'm happy to answer it, but I do think that it's it's a question that, that people ask because they like to be able to place themselves on the scale. That's better right? or worse, yeah. Yeah, so they think, well, I wasn't that bad. Um, I was not someone who was drinking every day even. I wasn't drinking before, you know, 5 p.m. in the evening. I wasn't, I could go whole days without drinking without thinking about it. But when I drank with my friends, I didn't, I, cu- I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't stop at one or two. It would always end up as a very big night. Um, so to answer your question, how many was I drinking? Sometimes three or four, sometimes if I went to a barbecue on one occasion, which is quite common in Australia, you go to a barbecue at 12 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and you're still there at three in the morning. But it's a party, mm. right? Like, so if I, if I look at a night like that, maybe I drank 15 drinks. Who knows? You know, yeah. I wasn't counting, but there was no, there's no set number. And I think people are really, they want to know what is an alcoholic. And I, I, I never defined as an alcoholic. I didn't go into any treatment when I stopped. I just stopped. I didn't, I don't feel like my drinking was at a level where I required any kind of clinical intervention. Um, but I think the question that that I often say a question, it's asking yourself, is alcohol getting in the way of you living the life that you want? Is it impairing your um, performance at work? Is it getting in the way of your friendships and your relationships? Is it affecting your health, your mental health? These are the questions to ask. You don't, and, and I think I often say, and I say this in the, in the new chapters of Higher Sobriety, if your house was on fire, you wouldn't wait till it burned to the ground to call triple zero. You know? mm. And for me, there was little spot fires going off everywhere. You know, I might go out and have one too many and, stumble over in my heels and end up with a scar on my knee and oh, it's just a funny story to tell your friends but lastly I was starting to have blackouts and not remember what I was doing and that's a very dangerous place to be for, for a woman in a, in, a, in a world where unfortunately there's a lot of predators out there um, you know I think this idea that we have to hit rock bottom before we realize that our drinking is getting in the way of us living a life we want is, is a bit of a misconception uh, for me I started to my friendships were really suffering because I would drink and then all of the emotional issues that I was able to sort of keep under wraps when I was rational and sober would come out when I was drunk or hungover and I'd be texting friends, terrible friends to me. And I honestly believe that some of those friendships would not have survived if I continued on that trajectory. So I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. You wake up the next morning that terrible anxiety, like, what did I do? What did I say? Who do I need to apologize to? How many times can you do that before you think, oh, it's going to be a better way? Yeah, I relate so much to your story. I think this idea of not getting to rock bottom is so important. And I think 
likewise, I didn't feel like I'm an alcoholic at all, but there was definitely, I was expecting to be hung over every week on a Sunday and that's not healthy. Like I like just had this like written off that Sundays are my hangover day. Like don't get anything done, but have a good night on Saturday night. And now just like, I think it just comes back to that awareness and really asking yourself what matters to you, not what is normal in society or if you are going out because you really need to try and escape what's going on in your own life, it's like, well, by running away, it's not going to solve any problems. By getting drunk, it's not going to solve the problem. It's so important to face up to these things that we are going through. And quite often, alcohol is fuel to the fire. If you're in a bit of financial trouble, going out and drinking definitely ain't solving that. It's making you worse. If your mental health struggling, drinking is not going to solve it. It's going to make it worse. Alcohol, I can see, I believe there is definitely places where alcohol is fine but the way that we do drink culturally especially here in australia especially with young people is so so unhealthy for us so when you um wrote high sobriety what was that first year off like for you what changes did you see in yourself what were some of the positives and what were some of the challenges that you faced and what was yeah that that draw card that said you know what, i'm gonna stop for a year well i had no intention of stopping for a year <laughs> i so, so I interviewed a guy called Chris Rain, who started an organization called Hello Sunday Morning, which at the time was a very small online movement of people who were thinking about cutting back on their drinking or stopping drinking for three months. That was what Chris said was the minimum amount of time you needed to change your pattern of drinking. Yeah. And, and when I interviewed him, I just couldn't stop thinking about it because, you know, I was a journalist from Scotland, living in Australia, I felt like I couldn't possibly stop drinking because it's so much part of my national identity, my professional identity, culture. And, um, and he said to me, why don't you give it a try? And I just thought, that's crazy. I, I couldn't possibly. You know, I thought about all the different social events that I had to go to that I couldn't possibly miss. And then I went to a New Year's Eve party, uh, 2010, New Year's Eve, and I got home at sort of 6 a.m., I think, and I I woke up with a hangover that was so bad on the first day of 2011 that I thought that's how that's how the book High Sobriety starts, with that hangover, where I actually thought I was going to die. I was so hungover. I had a massive panic attack driving my car to Macca's, to, you know, to buy some food to heal my terrible hangover. And I just felt absolutely dreadful, and I just thought, I can't keep doing this and I, I kept thinking I need to stop I need to stop and I think that is something that your inner voice we all have one and it's trying to tell you something and we ignore it all the time and we often ignore it by pouring alcohol in it it was trying to tell me you need to change this is going to end badly and I just knew instinctively that I had to give it a go and I and the, I thought as Chris said, three months is the minimum time to actually change the pattern because if you just do Feb fast or you do a month at a time, you kind of just white knuckle it. And I've done that before. You just white knuckle it. You wait till the month's over. You can kind of just get through it. Where three months, you're going to have to probably go to a wedding or go to a birthday party or put yourself out of your comfort zone. So I did, and I thought to myself, three months, which would have included my 35th birthday, and I just thought, it just scared the shit out of me. And as soon as I thought that, I was like, if this scares me this much to not be able to drink for three months, there's a problem there. You know? Exactly. Like, 
exactly why is it why am i so dependent socially on this substance and so that's when i knew that i had to do it so i stopped for three months and to my great surprise i absolutely loved it i i felt immediately more alert i had clarity i felt stronger i felt fitter i felt happier and calmer i was not expecting that i was just thought i'll just get through it you know um and so at the end of the three months i decided to do another three months because I was like, why would I give up this feeling? It it feels feels really good. Um, and I wrote about my editor at the age said, will you write a piece about your what you've discovered over the last three months? And so I wrote this piece for the age. It's about two and a half thousand words, picture of me dancing at a gig, completely sober. Everyone thought I was drunk in it because I looked so happy and I was kind of like, my hair's flying all over the place and I just looked completely joyful. And the the title of that the headline on that piece was High Sobriety. And I started by saying, you know, I basically, it was a confessional. I'm the binge drinking health reporter. I've won awards for writing about Australia's alcohol time bomb. And yet I'm doing all of this in my private life. And I made it very public. And I have to tell you, like, I'd been a journalist at that point for uh, like 11 years, maybe. And I don't think it, at any point in my career had I written something that had the response that that article had. It wow. just went crazy and people felt seen. People felt like I was telling their story and no one was no one was really having that conversation about, you know, now the Sober Curious movement is huge and people are, are, are doing podcasts like yours and there's all sorts of uh, a really big conversation happening. Right back then there was nothing. It was so I think I think it really gave people permission to sort of look at their own drinking. And from that article, it led to a couple of publishers approaching me and saying you know, there's a book in this. So I went to meet the publisher that I ended up signing with. And he said, if you do this for 12 months, that would be a really great book. And I remember thinking, as I walked out of the publishing house, you know, it was a dream come true. I'd always wanted to write books since I was a little girl. And, you know, he's saying, here's your book deal. And the, my first thought was, I want to go and have a glass of champagne. To celebrate. <laughs> celebrate. I couldn't because I was contractually obliged to not drink for another nine months. So so I, I never planned, I didn't, like, unlike you, you, you know, you planned, you're like, I'm going to do a year. Like, I didn't plan a year. I planned three months. And then I was like, oh, I'll do another three months. And then it became like this experiment as, as part of the book. It's like um, me, the forced accountability is the thing that's helping me. I can't, right? I'm like, you're like, I signed a deal. I'm like, I walked down, I like went to a music festival a few months, or like a few weeks ago. Um, and I had probably five people within half an hour be like, oh, you're not drinking. Oh, you're not drinking. Like if people <laughs> listen to the podcast, it's like, it's, it's cool. But it, um, definitely the forced accountability has been a big help for me. Well, that, it's funny you mentioned that because that actually came with a lot of pressure as well. So at the end of that year of cruise, I mean, I never planned to stop drinking forever. Like it mm. was, I never said that. I didn't really know how it was going to end. Yeah, me um, and, I, and I, I learned so much and I, poured it all into this book and at the end of the book I go back to drinking after about 14 months I, I went back to drinking tentatively and I tried to drink mindfully and moderately and a lot of people were really pissed off like a lot of people had were actually furious I was still getting emails saying you know why why have you gone back to drinking and, and I, I, I really I found as you've just said like I would walk into a bar and have a glass of wine and people would be like aren't you that chick who wrote a book about sobriety and I felt all this pressure. I realized that a lot of people had tied their relationship with alcohol to mine and, and I never asked to be that role model. And it's it's amazing how much people project their own sort of um, feelings around drinking onto you. 
And so, yeah, I went back to moderate mindful drinking for a while. And over the years, the old habits crept back in. And, and, and in 2019, after I had a pretty epic breakdown in 2014, 2015, and, and I couldn't really ignore anymore the correlation between like the huge dips in my mental health and the big nights of drinking. Like it's just, mm. it's just, it was impossible for me to ignore the anxiety was getting so bad. And the older you get, the worse that becomes. And uh, yeah, you're, you're a, a young man, but like the older that you get, you don't even need that much to feel hungover the next day. Mm. Um, and you, might, you actually might find this if you do go back to drinking, when you take an extended period of time off, you, your tolerance is pretty low and so yeah. you can get drunk on one glass of wine and still feel the effects the next day so yeah it's it's been quite a journey and so I stopped in like middle of June end of June 2019 I haven't had a, a drink since and I mean I don't I don't know never say never that I because I've learned not to say that but I can't see alcohol adding anything to my life at this point That's interesting but then we still I feel like I'll definitely go back and drink but I like uh, two weeks after my years up, my brother-in-law is a big DJ and he's um, DJing at a, he's throwing his own three day festival in Malta. And it's like, my sister's like, yeah, you'll be on our like super yacht that we're on. I'm like, I'm going to drink at that. And then I'm also like, but I feel like my lifestyle where I live doesn't involve drinking anymore because the people around me have really taken to it. And so I feel like I'm going to, my mindset I'm sure you probably had this best intentions as well when you said you'll go back drinking but mindfully I think it's just going to be like a kind of this one little blowout to celebrate the year and then I think I'm just going to stay stopped to just I don't know I just feel like yeah everything else has improved in my life yeah it'd be interesting once you do read the book to see because I obviously write about that experience yeah and what happens and it, maybe it's a I think <laughs> a cautionary mm. tale of what, what could happen I mean obviously my my story is not everyone's story but I think it's pretty common it's crazy how similar both of ours are to be honest yeah. you're saying yeah. like that you had this year accountability and like we're actually both similar that we did this year challenge yeah. but um yeah it's yeah I'm excited to read your book and I think like for me people often ask like or people often say well why don't you just have one or two drinks why don't you just drink on the weekends and I did that for a period of time and I think a lot of people who consider themselves what they call gray area drinkers right and they're not necessarily alcoholics but they're there's something not quite right with the way they drink and so they're they try to moderate and and like bargain with yourself right well I'll just only drink on I won't drink before 5 p.m and I won't drink after 10 p.m and I won't well, I'll drink, mm. I'll drink a, well, it's a like why drink ever yeah yeah and I, and I think I tried a bit of that it's exhausting the mental gymnastics that's required it's so much easier to just not drink than it is mm. to but as you say maybe you'll go back and have like one big party and and then you find like the the life that you want to lead it's just not like for me alcohol gets in the way of that in so many different mm. ways um there's so much more time in my week when I'm not hungover um you know the great yeah. untapped the untapped resource of Sunday mornings that I just never used to see. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I was like New Year's Day this year. I was out at six thirty in the morning, and it was like there'd been a zombie apocalypse. There's no one on the streets because, yeah. other than a couple of people who looked like they were coming back from nightclub. But um, yeah, it was just there's just sort of silence, and I just thought, wow, that's pretty cool. That's <laughs> so, so yeah, cool. Life is a yeah. bit different now from my party days, but um, yeah, it's it's good. Yeah, the last question I'm going to ask you, because I feel like a lot of people will be quite interested in your story. What are, if somebody is super curious and like, you know what, I want to pull the trigger, 
what are some tips that you've got for them that you've experienced over multiple times of stopping drinking alcohol? What's um, your maybe top three tips for someone or top three things to look out for? Um, well, I think the first thing is the mindset that you go in with. So, and I think sometimes when we just, we want to stop, but we're not really fully invested in, in it, then we, we kind of, as I said before, we white knuckle it, we just try to survive it. And we view not drinking as a sense of deprivation, like we're missing out on something. And I think if you go in with that mindset, you are going to feel miserable. If you walk into a party or a bar going, oh, I can't have fun because I don't have alcohol, like you are going to feel that miserable energy, you know, like um, rather than, so I often say rather than focusing on FOMO, like turn your mind to JOMO, so the joy of missing out. So the joy mm. of missing out on hangovers, the joy of missing out on disrupted sleep, on on looking at your phone and wondering who you texted the night before. Money. The, yeah, the money that you've wasted, the things that you were going to do, the plans that you've cancelled, the, the, regret, the regrets that you have. Think about that. There's a lot of joy in sobriety. I think when you think of that. it as deprivation and you're missing out, that's perhaps you are going to go into it feeling like this sucks, whereas if you go into it going, oh, it's actually an opportunity, and you start to realize, like it's it's a really great feeling to get to a place where you can walk into any room completely sober and feel confident in yourself, and that that's to me the, the greatest gift that I've been given by sobriety. And by no means am I one of these kind of born again saying, oh, everything's great when you're sober. It's challenging. It's hard, it's confronting sometimes, but I always say the best thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings, and the worst thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings. So mm -hmm. you can't have one without the other. So yes, you know, sobriety does not remove your problems, it illuminates them, but when you can see them, you can, you can attack them, you can tackle them. Mm. And what it does also do is it allows you to feel emotion in a more deep way. I, I feel like, joy in a way that I thought was only possible with chemical enhancements. You know, I actually feel that I feel more connected to myself. I feel stronger in myself. And that comes from stripping away all the, the kind of layers that alcohol masks. Um, and you start to feel more confident in yourself. So yeah, firstly, don't feel deprived. Think about what you might gain. Um, I guess, Another thing is to realize that you don't have to explain yourself. I think a lot of people go into it thinking they have to justify why they're not drinking. They have to apologize for their sobriety. You absolutely don't. Um, I often say that when it comes to your sobriety, and people ask me, will I lose friends? Well, you may. You may lose people who turn out to only be drinking buddies, not actual real mm. You know, people who would bury a body for you, friends. You might lose the drinking buddies, but the people who are left behind are the people who matter. So when it comes to sobriety, the people who matter don't mind, and the people who mind don't matter. So mm. that that's something to remember: is that you don't have to. When someone says to you, "Do you want to drink?" and you say no, and they say, "Why not?" you don't have to say, "Oh, because I'm doing this thing," and I'm. You can just say, "I don't drink." <laughs> yeah isn't that funny it's the one drug that you have to explain to people why you don't take it it's the only drug you have to justify not taking but you actually don't have to justify yourself you, yeah. you've just been totally conditioned to think that we have to justify it mm. um 
And then the other thing is, I think, to learn to um, soothe yourself, reward yourself, celebrate without alcohol. Because, you know, in our culture, we use alcohol to celebrate, commiserate, commemorate, and everything in between. Think of ways that you can give yourself treats, that you can, you know, um, have joy in your life without alcohol there. So mm. whatever that might be, something that you couldn't do when you're hungover. Maybe try and do that. I don't know if it's like paddleboarding at 6 a.m. or if it's going to a dance class or whatever it might be, like just trying things in your life and finding ways to turn down your anxious brain without alcohol because alcohol really doesn't help in those circumstances. Like if you've got anxiety, drinking is like pouring petrol on a bonfire and watching your life blow up around you. So, yeah, just finding new ways to to calm yourself and soothe yourself without alcohol. And when you get to that point, you realize that, well, I realized, I don't know about anyone else, but I realized that one of the two reasons that I drank primarily is one, to increase pleasure and two, to reduce pain. And when you learn to do both of those things without alcohol, that is a really mm. freeing thing. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I think those three little categories and little tips I guess you'd call them will help a lot of people because yeah I think just not enough of us uh, we don't question ourselves enough because there isn't that many people around us who don't drink but like you said I feel like there is a big culture shift we are heading in a new direction with all the um, non-alcoholic drinks that are out there and something that I heard that I don't know if you heard this concept but someone said to me and this has been something that I've really stuck with is I haven't stopped drinking I've just stopped drinking alcohol doesn't mean you have to go out and drink yeah. a glass of water or people are like, oh, you want a water or you want a fire engine? It's like, no, like I can have a non-alcoholic beer. I can have a non-alcoholic gin and tonic. I can have a non-alcoholic almost everything now and still enjoy going out for a drink. You just yeah. don't go out for a drink of alcohol, which that's been a big help for me. We're chatting here and behind me there's my bar full of non-alcoholic uh, drinks. Spirits, spirits and stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's like Epic. a little bar. Yeah, I think, I think it's it, the whole non-alcoholic drink sector has moved on enormously. Um, we have a, Australia's first non-alcoholic bar here in Melbourne, Brunswick that's Aces. So I'm an ambassador for, and it's it, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it's such a different place. Like ten years ago, when I quit drinking, there was just nothing like that. There was no options, and there was a, a huge resistance from the industry, hospitality industry. Now yeah. I understand that there's money in this for them. Big untapped market. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, this has been an epic chat. Thank you so much for your time and sharing. I'll put in um, the show notes your new 10-year anniversary book. I'll also put your other two books that you told me off air before because they sound super interesting as well. Um, I guess where can anyone find you if they want to find you on social media or learn a bit more about you and your story? Yeah, so I spend most of my time on Instagram, so it's just Jill Stark with two underscores at the end. Um, and you can look at my website. It's just jillstark.com.au. Or, I, yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, but both of those platforms seem like they're... Yeah, I don't use, I don't <laughs> use me that, don't worry. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm a, and I'm a very I'm a very bad TikToker, but I'm also on TikTok. But, yeah, mostly... <laughs> Epic. Well, I'll leave a bunch of your stuff in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. The last question I do finish all of my podcasts with is, what does being a good human mean to Jill Stark? Oh, good question. Yeah, so um, I've thrown you under the bus with the gratitude and good human questions. <laughs> I think I like to be someone who, yeah, I really pride myself on 
on being authentic and genuine and um, showing that vulnerability can be a strength, you know, um, trying to show that soft underbelly that we all have because when we see that in other people, we realize that we're, we're not alone. And I, the other thing that I think makes for a good human is acceptance, you know, like, and I write about this in my second book, Happy Never After, where we're taught that we're meant to be happy and joyful all the time. And actually that's not the human condition. Like the price of admission for being alive is feeling sadness and disappointment and frustration and grief and anger. And they all teach us something. So when we accept that and lean into that, it's a, a, a much happier place to be. Beautifully put. I love that answer. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for jumping on Good Humans podcast. Like I said, first 28 and sober guests for this year. I'll, um, yeah, I'm sure hopefully some people reach out, maybe share their story with you, pick up your book and yeah, hopefully continue to follow your journey. So thanks so much for jumping on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 